On the Empire Podcast this week, Steve Carell gives us a guide to villainy as Despicable Me 2 hits cinemas, Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg warn us about the end of the world, and we look at the new films from Jason Statham and Britt Marling and discuss the week's big news. Hello pod, I'm Helen O'Hara and you're very welcome to the Empire Podcast. I am once again stepping into Chris Hewitt's slightly sweaty trainers as he jets off somewhere exotic, but it's okay because they're Star Wars themed so I feel right at home. Uh, joining me this week is someone who's willing to do anything for Empire as long as it involves dressing up as a zombie and or chatting to one of his comedy heroes. It's Nick DeSemlin. Hello, Nick. Hi, Helen. How are you doing? I am very well, thank I'm you. I'm also well. I did dress up as a zombie. I'm going to talk about that later. <laughs> you are, yes. I'm going to ask you much more about that. But you didn't eat any human flesh, right? Just to put our readers' minds at rest. Just a few brains, but that doesn't count, right? Nah, it's fine. Okay, next up is a man who was once told he had slick shoes by Andre Benjamin and hasn't taken them off since. I have to tell you, in the close confines of the pod booth, that's becoming a problem. There seems to be a bit of a sweaty trainers theme today, actually. Hello, Ollie Richards. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good. And they uh, they weren't trainers, they were boots. And I also, I sadly no longer own them. Oh, well, that's just completely made a liar yeah, of me. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But, so, but you do still have smelly feet, obviously. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, fine. Yeah. Uh, last but not least is Phil DeSemlin, a man who stood in line all night for the first screening of Jack and Jill, but only because he confused it with Jules et Jim. Hello. It was actually the other way around. So that's how your art house love started, with Jack and Jill. Yeah. I see. Well, I had it. It's got Al Pacino and stuff, so... Yeah, fair enough. give it away. Yeah, fair enough. Um, as ever, we're going to kick off with your questions, comments, and death threats. At Run to Kana asks... What's been your favourite cinema or cinema experience in a foreign country? I saw Independence Day in 1994 when it came out uh-huh. in America, and at the end of the film, everyone in the auditorium stood up and applauded. Yeah, I think that's, <laughs> that I've, was just I've the heard ultimate. that as well in yeah. American cinemas, yeah. I had a similar experience with Armageddon in, um, I think we were in Iowa. It was like A, people thought it was a documentary, and B, it, the amount of audience participation and just <laughs> whooping. And people looking at us because we weren't standing up and jumping around when Bruce Willis turned up, like we were communists. Well, you are though, really. Yeah, they didn't know that though. It was dark. <laughs> we weren't speaking. But those are the best when people were cheering in a non-ironic way. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. At, exactly. At silliness. I have a very big soft spot for French cinemas because I, I lived for a year in Paris and I spent a lot of that time. Uh, in the, the various cinemas up and down the Champs Elysees, and they're fantastic. Although there is a tendency for if you go on your own in the middle of the day, which I did because I was a student, for strange old men to come and sit right next to you in an empty cinema, which was a bit bit weird. Bit weird. But apart from that, they're fantastic. I was just talking to Ian Freer about this question earlier, and he said he saw Raids of the Lost Ark in in Paris, uh-huh. and he didn't enjoy it because everyone was kissing. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't find an epidemic of kissing when I was at the cinema in Paris. I find uh, that it was uh, it was more a case where um, sometimes they didn't get stuff that we got. Um, you know, even though the films were subtitled or dubbed, well, I, I usually went the subtitled ones. But for example, The Mask of Zorro, myself and my friends who went were laughing the whole way through because it's so ridiculous, and and the French seem to be taking it all quite seriously, which was a bit mm. odd. I saw French Kiss in Italy. Confusing. Yeah, postmodern. I saw Life is Beautiful in France, so that's a beautiful kind of cross-culture thing. And I saw 101 Dalmatians in the cinema in Paris. You were probably too young at the time, bro, but he, um, in French with no subtitles. Ah. Uh, 101 Dalmatians, it's called in France, 101 Dalmatians. <laughs> and we saw Trainspotting, uh, you and I, in Washington, D.C., with subtitles funny. for the whole film. We did, didn't we? we? I remember that. It only played in one cinema in the, what they call the tri-state area, which is Maryland, Virginia, Washington, D.C. It's not really a state. Um, one cinema. And yeah, we went along to see it. And it was entirely subtitled, which actually was quite helpful at certain points, even for me, because I couldn't <laughs> quite catch some of Begbie. Um, yeah, that was good. Brother memories. Yeah, Amazing. I, I, think, I think we need to go to more Sorry, exotic everyone. locations, really, for our cinema going. Under siege in Chile. That was awesome. Oh, that's good. Maxima alerta. <laughs> Okay, um, at Calvin underscore Berry asks, which film franchises do you wish had remained a standalone film? Apu. (laughs) (laughs) The sequels. I generally don't mind films going on with sequels for as long as they want to because you don't have to see them. But Hangover is the one that stands out to me. That was on my list also. Just because it it had no reason to be a a franchise. There was no... You didn't get to the end of that and think, God, I want to know what happens next. Well, There's absolutely no forward momentum. And I think as the two later proved, there was nowhere to go with it. Well, it's generally when there's a sequel which just imitates the first film yeah. and does the same thing. Ghostbusters 2 doesn't count because it's better. 
but other than that, what, than it's Ghostbusters, not. it's it's similar but better. It's um, so we're well, not sorry, getting we're the first get, Ghostbusters. We're not getting into this. This is this is a this Whoa. is a, a continuing Whoa. debate. No, no, no. I've talked but, about this every yeah. single time I've been on, so I won't go into it. Well, that's but why just, you don't get to invite it back. Shut this, <laughs> shut this down. Despite what Bill Murray and Rick Moranis say, it's better. Um, You're grounded. The Matrix is got to be the ultimate yeah. one of these, isn't it? I would say Pirates of the Caribbean for me. I don't think we needed any of those sequels. You know, there are wonderful moments in all of yeah. them, but uh, but I was quite happy with the first one just on its own. Yeah, but I find with that's more. Uh, I don't necessarily wish that they'd stayed single films. I more just wish the follow-ups being better. Like Fair the enough. Matrix, where you uh, absolutely there was more story to tell. It just turned out that story was really boring. <laughs> But it wasn't. I don't think doing a follow-up to the Matrix was a bad idea. It just wasn't very well executed. And there's the freeway chase, which, even though the rest of that film is terrible, the freeway chase I will happily watch any time. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. I'm not sure I'd be alone in thinking that 2010: A Space Odyssey 2 didn't quite match the original. <laughs> um, I agree with Ollie though. It's like you don't have to watch the films if you don't want to. The trouble is you find yourself kind of getting sucked into this thing of going, "Is there going to be another one?" And mm. without really thinking. What's that quote about, like, yeah, asking whether whether there should be that Jurassic Park thing? And Paul Feig talking about, you know, Bridesmaids 2. Obviously, it's not his baby, but you're going to do another Bridesmaids. Like, what do we need another Bridesmaids? Yeah. I mean, the first one was great and funny. The second one's not going to be as good. Don't bother, but it'll make a lot of money if they do. So, oh, sorry. Sorry, Blues Brothers. Oh, my God. Yeah, Blues Brothers. (laughs) Ah, but the the song at the end is High Blue, Can You Get? Blues yeah. Brothers. I, oh. I, I, release it as a soundtrack. As a soundtrack. As a soundtrack. I, as, a CD, as a concert movie it. or something. Yeah, yeah fair yeah, enough. Yeah. All right. Um, no, a really important question. This perhaps the most important question we've ever had on the podcast. At Mr. Graham Pierce asks, "What should I call my unborn twins? My wife wants me to pick names, but I want some cool movie suggestions." Now, I have to say. I got my college newsletter um, a couple of years ago and someone announced the birth of their twins, Luke and Leia. No. Not even kidding. So, you know, th- there's there's a high bar to match here. What do we recommend? Doesn't it rather depend on the gender? Or are we just... I well, don't know. you know, let's just, let's just we'll kind of give us. them some ideas. Yeah, I've got some options. Uh, Thelma and Louise, if it's oh, girls. Oh, cute. George and Stephen, if it's boys. Yogi <laughs> and Boo Boo, if it's indeterminate. And I also like uh, Sala and Short Round. I think that, that, is, that is the direction I go. Uh, Powell and Pressburger, I think, are gen- gen- <laughs> That's good. Pressburger or Richards. Powell and Richards. Pressburger would be amazing. What, Pressburger for a girl or a boy? Well, either. Okay. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Also, Powell Pierce or Pressburger Pierce. Quite literally. And, that does, yeah. that does and they work. work. It kind yeah, of works. Works. They could be grow pee-pee. up to be... Well, no, but they could grow up to be a superhero like Peter Parker. That is true. Or go to the Himalayas and, you know, in a nunnery. Yeah. And have um, dramatic... I worry we're we're wishing bad things on these poor yeah. unfortunate children. What about Gizmo and Stripe? <laughs> T- Turner and Hooch. Mm. Turner and Hooch. Turner and Hooch is fantastic. Poor Hooch. Pacino and De Niro as first names. Okay. <laughs> would it be Pacina if it's a girl and De Niro? Y- yes, it would. Okay. Yes, it would. So, um, Mr. Pierce, congratulations to you and your wife. Um, on to our first interview of the week now. Uh, Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg have been buddies since they were knee-high to a Mountie back home in Canada and have written the likes of Superbad, Pineapple Express and The Green Hornet. Now they're teaming up as directors as well to bring us This Is The End, where Rogen, James Franco, Jonah Hill and a host of Hollywood stars play themselves as the Judeo-Christian apocalypse totally ruins a house party at James Franco's place. Ali and I got the whole story. Okay, well, welcome to the Empire Podcast. We're joined today by Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. Thank uh, you. Thank hey, you for coming hey. in to talk about This Is The End. Thank is you. It, is it? Really? Yep. Yes. Oh. Everything's going to burn. Wow. It's it gonna, will. It's going to be messed up. But just after the movie comes out, right? Yeah, yeah. We're not We're not stupid. So we go and watch the movie, and then just afterwards, that's when... Yeah. I just saw that you gave us a good review in your magazine. Oh, that's We're, Heat Magazine. We're Empire. Oh, good. Thank God. We're just in their building, too. <laughs> Thank you God. have the enemy magazine in your building. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, we're we're in their studio. You see, so, uh, yeah, we, we, they didn't give us a studio. We've infiltrated. Okay. You guys need to get on that. I know, right? I was reading Empire magazine on the way over here. Excellent. Which Hugh Jackman was on the cover. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that a good guy. cover. It is a good cover. Why wasn't he in this movie? Uh, he rejected us. He we begged. No, yeah, we begged. We no. begged. He's too handsome. I assume he would. Have said, I, he seems so nice. I assume he would do it. He did movie forty two. 43, he, yeah. 43. He's happy to do things that make him look silly. <laughs> it's true. We Had Movie 43 come out yet by the Listen, time we made I haven't movie? seen it, and I don't get it. Exactly. Yeah. I can't say bad things about that movie. because I, I just don't know. It. I don't understand what it is. 
<laughs> it's like Lucille Bluth and the rest of Element. I don't understand the question and I won't respond to it. <laughs> it's true. I don't think, from what I read of the reviews, I don't think the people who made it understood. Yeah. It. <laughs> I have to one see way to it find in my out. life. Hmm. I need to see that film. I'd watch it right now. Chris Mans Plus is in it, isn't he? Or is that the he other is. one? He is in it. He is in it. Yeah. We were discussing off mic uh, about people who were in it or maybe could have been in it but didn't know whether they were available Chris Fermin's Plus well maybe him he, you've got Michael Serra in here who's very funny yes was he busy doing Kick-Ass 2 or something no he's in it no he's in it no no no, no. he's there I, yeah, I didn't spot him. This is how many people are in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he's in it for sure. Michael Cera blows cocaine in his face. Oh, that's right. And then yeah. you got, I didn't realise at first, and this is me being ignorant, yeah. I don't read heat. I thought, is that Rihanna? It is Rihanna. And then I went, whoa, it is. <laughs> whoa, it is. Yeah, we're just going to put her in everything we make from now on. Exactly. <laughs> She's our new one. It's yeah. like Hitchcock always shows himself in his films. We're going to have Rihanna. <laughs> we're just going to have Rihanna walk by in every movie. That's actually a pretty goddamn That's That is a good idea. idea. Yeah. It's a much better idea than putting Hitchcock in your movies. <laughs> yeah. Now. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but this is biblical, this one. Yeah. Yes. This now, is the biblical apocalypse. When did we, you decide biblical? We talked for years about what kind of apocalypse it should be, and... I think it actually started. We always we always remember, like in high school, we're we're Jewish gentlemen, and um, we grew up with not a lot of Jewish people. And you know, America's you know ninety five percent Christian, and Canada's similarly uh, you know you know it's a similar ratio, I would imagine. And we just always thought it was interesting that like. You know, whether or not they literally believed it or not, a lot of people were taught that me and Evan were going to go to hell for no reason whatsoever, basically. <laughs> no matter how and, good we were. Yeah, no matter how good we were, it just, like, wasn't going to happen for us. And so <laughs> that notion was just always kind of entertaining to I us. guess it's kind of beautiful that they were still our friends. It's true. It is nice Because, like, them. they're wasting yeah, time on us. They, they were. were like, nah, yeah, this is we, all they have. We can't be friends in eternity. But um, to us, it was just kind of an entertaining notion. And then when you actually sit down and read the book of Revelations, it's, like, amazingly literal, which mm-hmm. is what's so bizarre about it like it's very physical like we make up almost nothing like almost everything in the movies directly from the book of revelations which which to us was then just like we were just like we have to do this like like look at it like it's, it's laid out like a literally movie. the like, most popular book in the world yeah and it's based on the most popular book ever written so you know we thought we'd be as popular as harry potter we were wrong because our book that we're based on is more popular than i think harry, harry potter, potter usurped the bible in like 2009 harry potter might be more popular than the bible there is actually a chance of that so is this why emma watson got involved then you were trying to mm-hmm. just ensure that you really overtake harry potter we want to have the most yeah literary savvy movie of all time <laughs> Based on the Bible, starring a Harry Potter star. <laughs> but I mean, maybe, maybe it's because you know, Revelations is kind of the bit of the Bible where it wasn't it Saint John the Revelator had been eating a few too many mushrooms or yeah, something. John, I mean, yeah. something had clearly been going on in that. No, movie. it's just the climax. Yeah, <laughs> stuff gets like really it's crazy. Go big, yeah, yeah. Go big or go home. Michael Bay, Bay wrote the just because movies didn't <laughs> exist didn't mean they know how to end a story yeah. with a bang. It's true. They knew it was engaging, and it worked because there's more Christians than Jews. So their 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 version of the Bible sold a lot better well, than our version. We don't even really have a... Just no. a, a guy shows up and everyone's cool. Yeah, no, it, it's not nearly as dramatic as it is in, in the New Testament. Yeah, the New Testament was a much better seller than the Old Testament, mm. and I say, due to the ending. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like you've got the prequel. Better uh, ending, basically. yeah, exactly. <laughs> we were raised with the prequel, yeah. Careful now, we don't want any spoilers. Now, we've had previous movies where comic groups or, or friends who are all comics uh, in some capacity, like Shaun of the Dead, in Britain have come together were you keen to not cross over other people's patches so you didn't want to do zombie and you, you yeah. went biblical were you all conscious of that or did you just kind of freewheel it well I mean the, the zombie comedy's over those guys did it forever yeah they did like, a very good just, job no one should it. ever try that again yeah and uh, I think they're doing aliens in their new one and a lot of and I feel like that's kind of there's been a few alien invasion-y comedies, I feel like, over the years. I mean, honestly, to us, yeah, it, it, it had just been the one no one had done before, which was exciting. It was and the one no one had done and the one that is most well-known by humanity. Everyone, yeah. So, I mean, it was kind of an odd, you know, mixture of things that, that led to it really being the best idea. And also, just dramatically, as far as a movie goes, it has, like, a built-in mechanism that's exactly what you want in a movie, is that it's all about redemption. Like, it's all about whether or not you're good or bad. And, like, for a movie, there's no better type of device to use you know because it's it's just so character based and it's it's so emotional and 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 that's literally what you want to have a movie to ultimately be about is like whether or not you're changing or growing or redeeming yourself mm-hmm. so it really just lent itself you know to a cinematic world it seemed like yeah because zombies don't judge you 
No, exactly. <laughs> They're very kind of very like, much so. So obviously, everyone's kind of playing playing with their persona. Some playing very much against their public persona. Some people just kind of heightening it. So you've got Michael Sarah, you know, famed nice guy going completely the other way um, yeah. and, and James Franco maybe just kind of exaggerating what he's the <laughs> public for, perception yeah. of him so who was kind of most difficult to convince was anybody a little bit hesitant that's the weird thing and the sad thing no one was hard to convince <laughs> they all wanted to do that they were all extremely excited to get ahead of the curve and just mock themselves before anybody got the chance it's, it's, it's like free therapy for all the actors yeah. you know like all these <laughs> magazines are saying weird stuff about them well how about they say something ten times weirder yeah uh, Franco especially he was he was really reveling in just like the ability to mock himself yeah he was the one guy you couldn't get to go too far <laughs> he was pretty amazing he'd go even further than we wanted I'd to. almost say self-destructive yeah exactly bordering so well. on self-destructive <laughs> it's a movie that made me think afterwards what ended up on the cutting room floor Often uh, it was that's one dick joke too many. Yeah, or poo, poo like this. Yeah, we, found we, poo we, was a turnoff for people. There's but, a lot but of like, surprisingly, pee is a huge pee hit. works, huge hit. <laughs> poo crosses the line. That's what we learned. And now we know movie. that. And for the rest of our careers, yeah, now we know not to us. not to mess with poo. That's in our Bible. Yeah, Rihanna in every movie. More pee. More pee, less pee. poo. <laughs> That's comedy, our mantra. Comedy rules. Sidney <laughs> Lumet wrote a book about filmmaking, and I think we have one to contribute as well. <laughs> chapter 14. Poo. <laughs> poo. <laughs> the entire text of the chapter. Exactly. Don't. Just don't. Poo. Don't. don't. <laughs> just don't. As funny as it seems, just don't. And the title is, This is the End. Very emphatic. How many other names did you consider before you plumped for that one? Tons. A lot of names. And we didn't even pick that one. It was kind of doled to us by the studio. <laughs> it's, it's, it turns out people aggressively own apocalyptic titles. Yeah, it was. It's, every title was owned. Uh, like, we, we first were called The Apocalypse, just The Apocalypse, and then someone else owned that. And then we wanted to be called The End of the World, but it was too close to The World's End, which Universal owned, so we couldn't do that. And then we wanted to just be called The End, which Fox owned, so we couldn't do that. And, and, then, and then we found out Sony already owned this is the end yeah and literally they were like we own the words this is the end you can have that and we're like okay we'll take and literally this decision came the day that we were locking our trailer so we had to actually like decide the day of like when it was gonna and there was actually a discussion we're like can we release our trailer without a title like is that weird and we were like it's just too weird like, yeah we, we, we kept saying that. the fifth element teaser just showed it the number five yeah exactly maybe so, we yeah, could just show like the letter E yeah, I'm all included somewhere in the title yeah <laughs> so how about like as directors how, how was the experience because okay you're working with friends you know in terms of the acting and, and you can kind of handle that but what about the I mean there's a lot of effects in here actually in the in the latter half of the movie that things get they really step up a gear. Yes. Yeah, that was a time-consuming uh, chunk of our lives. We did yeah. not realize how uh, how in detail you have to get as the mm. director. We always imagined you just asked a nerd to create a monster. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't they, work like they that. they returned with a monster. Yeah, that no. was rad. You really have to make sure it looks good. And uh, and it's one of those situations where you realize, like, oh, it's up to, like, no one else is going to do, like, it's up to us to decide whether or not it's good enough and to articulate to them how to make it better. Like, no one else is going to do it. We're the only standards that are looking to be met here. So, uh, yeah, like the visual effects guys have another job waiting for exactly. when they finish your job. So yeah. they want to finish and move on and yeah. you have to just kind of slam the nail Pound down them. keep yeah. doing it exactly it's a messed up system mm. but it was nice to I mean there was a sense of like we're, we are doing like kind of the most complicated type of movie you could do as our first movie which was kind of nice because the whole time we're like it won't be harder than this in the future <laughs> yeah it's true like if in our next movie for some reason we want like a planet eating uh, dinosaur yeah we can do that we now. can figure that out <laughs> we're the guys that do that the first thing that came to your head was planet eating dinosaur <laughs> that's immediately what I want to say yeah exactly <laughs> you just ruined the ending of our next movie <laughs> he's hoping Sony owns the rights to a planet eating dinosaur. dinosaur odds are Edgar Wright does <laughs> <laughs> the fourth in the three flavors yeah, exactly <laughs> You've, you've got this house, which is James Franco's house. How did you go about designing that and making that as, I'm going to say the word pompous, as possible? Because it is, it is it's look ridiculous. at all my shit. And, yeah. and how similar is it to his actual house? We've yeah. actually never been to his He owns no home. He sold it. Yeah, he, he bought a house, house briefly. His neighbours complained, Franco. and then he sold it and moved on. Yeah. Um, it was... 
It was interesting with the house. We talked a lot about how it had to be the kind of house that you wanted to hang out in and that you thought was douchey at the same time. (laughs) Like, that was kind of like the magical balance we were trying to create. Like, the kind of house, if you went to a party, you'd be like, oh, this guy's an asshole. But it's kind of an awesome house at the same time. (laughs) Like, there was a lot of conversations about how to strike that balance. And... You know, we reached out to a lot of artists that we are just fans of and that I'm fans of, a fan of. And Franco actually painted a lot of the art in the house himself. We just went through tons of like architectural magazines and books and kind of took pictures of stuff. Yeah, and there was also was a very cool. large practical element. You know, we're tr- financially to make the movie, we had to make the choice to film in one gigantic room for a large portion of the film, for most of the film. So that that like really had ramifications on what we did. We wanted yeah. to build a second way up, uh, you know, a walkway up yeah, top. Yeah, we, so we, we knew we wanted exactly. To the we knew we wanted hallways that we could be running around and kind of dark corners you could hide behind and like you know a floating like there was just some stuff like for like the action sequences. Yeah, like there's like the balcony that runs across the top. Like some stuff like that. We just knew visually we're in the same place for so long that we're gonna want just some depth and some different ways to film the scene so it's not boring the whole time. This is helpful by having a massive penis. Yes, it is. <laughs> Just, I, I, when you said earlier, practical, I thought you were going to say a, a really great practical <laughs> penis. penis. <laughs> um, you need that. Which has its own penis stand, its own base. It does. itself in the shape of a penis. It does. <laughs> Who got to take that home, or was that just put out to the trash? Did I think we- it actually got burnt. <laughs> I think it, it... Well, there was two. We had a backup. <laughs> Always but, have a backup penis. Rule three. Well, we hacked one in two with Emma. Emma. Emma chops the tip off of one, and then I think the other one, I think, burnt in the fire. Like, I think it actually got... And then, strangely, there was a third one that someone made into a bicycle as a wrapped gift to us. Oh, yeah, we have one that was retrofitted into a bicycle, actually. They kind of put... And, and we, you ride it. In order, like, you literally ride the penis. They <laughs> and put, it's big. They put wheels under each of the balls, and they mounted it on a giant, like, bike frame. You've got a penny-farthing penis. Yes, it's unbelievable. And it actually is, like, fun to ride. We rode it around once yeah, together in tandem. Around, it was quite yeah. funny. The crew enjoyed that moment. I, yeah. I'd like to think. In tandem. All right, well, uh, Seth Rogen, Evan Goldberg, thank you very much for coming in. This is The End is out this Friday. Thank you very much. Thank you. Right, movie news time now. What have we got? So, inside the uh, the brand new issue, uh, there is a uh, an article in which I interview uh, the legendary Rick Moranis. And um, it was very, very exciting experience. I got to go visit his house in New York and spend a day with him. Very, very nice man, as you'd expect. And during the interview, he we, we got talking about Ghostbusters, obviously, and I asked him if he'd heard from Dan Aykroyd about Ghostbusters 3, which obviously Aykroyd has now been banging on about for about five years, mm. if not longer. And uh, he said quite surprisingly that he hadn't heard from Aykroyd himself. He'd heard mm-hmm. from one of Aykroyd's people. And um, it sounds like it's kind of a, in a state of not... There's no script, there's no story that he was aware of or anything like that. So uh, it's not the greatest news story, but he basically <laughs> said he'd be up for it if it was good. Um, so that's kind of news. What do we think about that? Uh, my big takeaway from there is that Dan Aykroyd has people. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's Dan Aykroyd wearing a wig. <laughs> uh, sure. ja- I'm Dan Aykroyd. I guess, uh, I guess Ghostbusters 3 up for it if, if it is good. Yeah, I think that's I probably... I totally agree with Rick Moranis. Yeah, here. the way of the world, isn't yeah. it? We're up for it if it's good. So we're agreed. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he, but that, that's wonderful. I mean, you got to uh, talk to him. It's his first interview in years, isn't it? Pretty much. Yeah, he's done a couple of others actually to promote. I think he talked to the New York Times and, and he did a podcast and a few other things. So he he's kind of come out a bit. But yes, this is the first time he's talked for a very long time, and um, he's just a very pleasant guy who doesn't seem. You know, he he says he gets scripts all the time still, and he's just happy that he doesn't want to travel. And he, you know, he he doesn't really. He's not really after the money or anything. So he's uh, he's just kind of content to be with his family and just kind of live his life. He plays uh, a lot of squash, doesn't he? He does play a lot of squash, and I actually uh, wore his squash uh, gear, including his shorts, at one point, which I explain in the article why yeah. that happened. Headband. You should, I think, pick up the new issue of Empire to uh, to hear more about that. The uh, it's just out uh, yesterday, as you listen to this, uh, assuming you're on time and listen to it on Friday. We should probably talk about it a bit. It's got a fantastic cover with the elves of the Hobbit, um, the Desolation of Smaug. So you've got uh, Legolas, Tauriel, and Thranduil. Oh, good work. Well who's, who's Legolas's dad? There's a great comedy special. 
We've reunited the uh, the cast of Three Flavors Cornetto trilogy, a pub photo shoot in which you play a zombie pouring a very poor pint of lager. I, yes, I realised after the shoot that I was pouring that really badly. I should have, you know, but I am a zombie, so I kind of justified it as in zombies. <laughs> zombies don't really have you know the, the the mind to be a bartender that's a good point um but I, I point. should give props at this point to the chap who did the makeup the zombie makeup who is brendan lonergan who worked on um prometheus and john carter don't hold that against him uh he's a very talented chap fair news we've also got a great photo shoot with steve coogan as well for um for the partridge movie which is fantastic and top secret reunited nostalgic crazy loony can't wait to yeah, read the, that too. the story behind Top Secret mm. basically which is one of my favourite little known comedies so yeah, yeah um, we've also got Only God Forgives we've got set reports from all over the world um, L- Lone Ranger and uh, Lone Ranger in there I mean basically what haven't we got it's pretty fantastic I'll tell you what we haven't got we haven't got anything at all on Downton Abbey which is why I'm bringing you news of Paul Giamatti's decision he's going to be in Downton Abbey he's playing an American playboy presumably with an aversion to Malow mm-hmm. and it's just sounds awesome I've never really watched the show before I'm probably going to watch this <laughs> so he's going to turn to up win. at the end of season 4 isn't that right is it and uh, Downton Abbey Abbeyists Abbeyites will know that he will be playing Lady Cora's brother playboy brother bit of a maverick uncle to Lady Mary etc so uh, that's going to be that's going to be interesting I want him to play his character from Shoot 'em Up that <laughs> would certainly that would shake things up that would be awesome <laughs> and is he a new series regular or is this a, a guest slot I think it's a it's a guest thing from what I gather um, but he may be it's not confirmed whether he's going to be in the next series after this but yeah we shall see there is so much love for Downton Abbey in Hollywood Dan yes. Stevens was saying that apparently they just they're on get together on set and talk about latest big star that said they love Downton Abbey Harrison Ford George Lucas uh, John Favreau that's the reason it's an Iron Man 3 yeah. Spielberg yeah actually Pat Oswald does the comedian does host a um, Downton Abbey viewing sessions where they all get together and Amy Mann and comes along and lots of people dress up and watch it Ollie, what have you got? Uh, mine is super businessy, so everyone should put on uh, ties and you know, big shoulder pads. Uh, it's about uh, Pacific Rim and yes. its tracking. So this summer, we've not so far had anything which I think has massively underperformed. Even the ones that people weren't sure how well they do, mm. like Man of Steel, uh, open brilliantly. Um, but Pacific Rim has been tracking apparently very poorly. Now, tracking is basically the studio's kind of trying to predict how well it's exactly. going to do when it opens. It's, uh, yeah, it's them taking a guess at how well the, uh, the opening week weekend will be and this is based on I've been reading up on this because it's a very confusing thing Uh, but it's done from a relatively small proportion of people I don't know in America how many people it is but if when they do tracking in the UK it's they ask about a thousand people whether they have heard of the film and then whether they will be going to see it and whether it will be their first choice to go and see Okay. and in Pacific Rim they've been asking people this and they have been saying no I will be going to see grown-ups too Okay, people are wrong. Yes. I, I think, think that says something about the kind of people you find wandering around shopping malls in the middle of the day. This is possibly true. But I hope this turns out not to be true. Apparently part of the plan with Pacific Rim was that they've got they've currently got the film geeks, the likes of us on board. Yeah. Because who doesn't want to see a film that is about giant robots punching giant sea monsters and giant winged things? But they are planning to just ramp things up in the last two weeks to get everyone in. So I really hope... I haven't seen this movie yet. don't think any of us have. I really hope this does well because it's really one of the only original projects of the summer not that there haven't been great sequels but it would be nice for an original idea to do brilliantly there's a theory I read online uh, which is saying that they're marketing this film very much for the destruction and the the carnage that ensues which looks amazing it's eye popping spectacle but it's coming after a bunch of films like Man of Steel and Iron Man 3 in which a lot of stuff gets blown up and a lot of stuff gets destroyed yeah. so is there a sense that this might just be a bit of just carnage fatigue I cannot imagine ever being bored with seeing giant things hit each other in the middle of a city yeah. you Rocket think that this is punch. why you go to the movies you don't you're wrong though you think that then you watch a Transformers film and you realise that you know there needs to be more than just that because you get you know and I, hope, I hope this is more than that well this is directed by Guillermo del Toro which I think but they haven't Give shown me. a lot of the character stuff yet. I well, hope. I think that's what they're beginning to do in this last couple of weeks before release because the, the m- most recent trailer, which is up on the website, mm. still has the giant robots punching the giant monsters, but also has a little bit more of the character stuff. So hopefully... I haven't been wild by any of I know what you're talking about and there's been a clip with Idris Elba. I haven't yeah. been... I haven't been convinced by it. It looks a bit like Godzilla from the trailers. I'm tremendously excited. No, I want it to be good. Trust me, I, I really want it to be good. I'm just saying that, you know, from what I've seen, I'm not seeing any great character stuff yet. 
Well, I'm still pretty darn excited and um, very, very hopeful that this will be awesome. But enough of our witterings. Uh, we need to get another famous person up in here. So let's bring on uh, Steve Carell, the funny man who earned immortality and our everlasting devotion as Brick Tamland in Anchorman. Uh, he came in recently to talk about his new film, Despicable Me 2, where he plays ex-supervillain Gru and the other exciting projects that he has coming up, including, of course, Anchorman 2. Ali Plum and I did the interview and yes, we did get him to do Gru's accent joined by Steve Carell. Hello, how do you do? I'm well, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, all the better for seeing Despicable Me too, which I thought was really entertaining. Thanks. It was really good fun. From supervillain, uh, when we last saw him, to jelly maker now, uh, yes. Gru's undergone a bit of a evolution. And apparently the most horrible jelly you've ever tasted <laughs> in your life. And minions like everything, and they hate this jelly as well. Mm. So he's, he's at a career impasse. He's trying to uh, trying to figure out what to do with the rest of his life because he can't be a villain anymore. Mm -hmm. He's three little kids. But you can't make jelly because that is not uh, emotionally satisfying, at least not for Gru. Especially not if it's horrible jelly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so he is he wants to get back into the game, just doesn't know how he can do that. I've always loved your voice as Gru, but I am concerned that it might be quite painful to do for hours and hours and hours. It is exactly the opposite. I could do it. I could do this voice as long as you'd want me to do it. It is a great party trick when my kids bring their friends over. They say, Mr. Carell, would you do the voice? And then I do the voice for them. <laughs> no, it's so easy. Because it's not an accurate depiction of any language. Yeah. It's just a stupid accent. It's an amazing impression of Gru. It's, it's Gru, exactly. It is a vaguely Eastern European villain. With a voice like this, you can really go to 11. Were the takes when the directors just went, yeah, that's too over the top? <laughs> we don't yeah. understand that anymore. Yeah, I, you know, I, no, one, no one would believe that that exists in any universe at all. No, and that's one of the, the lovely things about being able to do animation, doing a voice, is that there are no limits. You just, you can go, you can go to 11. You can do whatever you want to do, and if it's terrible, they just don't put it in the movie. <laughs> How does it feel when you are upstaged? By the minions, I will accept it. But all the time, like, and there are kids I overheard saying, I love all the Despicable Me's, and we worked out that they meant the minions. Of course. My kids prefer the minions over me. After we saw the first one, I was very proud. You know, you're cool dad, you're in an animated movie, and you've brought your kids, and they think it's great. And they just could not stop talking about the minions. They loved them. And I, I have to say... There's a reason for that because they are the Marx Brothers. They're they are they're funny and physical and violent in a sort of benign way, mm. um, and yeah, they're captivating. So, so there's no there's no animosity, there's no jealousy. This from me. I do have one bone to pick with Gru though, because he seems to very much to have a favorite daughter. Yeah, a little bit. The, the, the relationship with uh, Agnes is is a little bit kind of closer than you, the other yeah, two. It seems. Yeah, when you hear that voice, how can you not? <laughs> pick that daughter as your favorite daughter. She she has a heartbreakingly cute voice. And there's a line I I lean down or Gru leans down and kisses her on the forehead and says never never, never grow, grow older, yeah. never grow up. And I improvise that because that I, that's the way I feel with my kids. Each stage that they they arrive at it seems to be the perfect stage and I never want them to change. Then of course they they do grow up and that you know, that next year is just as, you know, equally great. Now, the Minions are getting their own spin-off movie and their villain there is Sandra Bullock. Have you given her any tips for, I think it's Scarlet Overkill? I have not spoken to her. I, I have a feeling that she will be able to create a fantastic character. I, she's, a, she's a very uh, talented person. I noticed that. I, I, don't think, uh, I don't think she's going to be calling me anytime Do soon for, for tips. Maybe. No, I, think, I can't wait. I mean, speaking of, of killer ladies, obviously you're with uh, Kirsten, Kristen Wiig in this one. Yeah. Um, as a sort of, uh, well, you don't quite know what she is at first. Is she a love interest? Is she going to turn out to have a hidden dark side? You know, there's a little bit of kind of mystery about her character, which is quite fun. Yeah. It? Oh, she's great. And Kristen Wiig is such such a joy. She's And she's always good. Mm. I, I've never seen her be anything other than exceptional. Mm. And she's, I think she's always the best thing in whatever she does. Well, that's bad news because you're working with her again in Anchorman 2. I know. She's <laughs> Strategic always, error. She's fantastic. She is so funny in Anchorman. I think, yeah, people are going to love her in that too. We're speaking to Adam McKay this evening. He's doing a trailer breakdown for us. And I was wondering whether you'd be willing to give any auxiliary information on the trailer at all, even if it's that bit's actually not very funny or this bit's actually more funny. Than um, all, everything you see isn't in the movie. 
How about that? <laughs> that is good information. That's pretty. Is that a, is that a mind blower? I think that's like Inception <laughs> for comedy. <laughs> I can't wait for the movie that they make from the excess bits yes. of it's, the movie. They'll be able to make three movies from the the excess. It's the script itself was so rich and so full. And we're talking about Anchorman too. That just the table read was devastatingly funny. But then you add, you know, a two-page scene could then turn into an eight-page scene based mm. on all the improvisation that goes on. And so much of the funny stuff happens right there on the day of shooting. So I, who knows? I, I'm, I'm very bullish about this movie. I think it's going to be really fun. I'd like to make a, a pitch. And it's that the sequel to Despicable Me 2 is called Despicable 3. What do you think? I, I think they're probably way ahead of you. <laughs> um, I wondered. And you know, it, it, it works for me. I, I already have in my mind, and again, depending on the success of this, you never know. But uh, I have some ideas as to where the story could go. And that's what I like about it, too. This is a very clever extension of the first movie. And, and I think there are natural extensions of this, too if people want to continue to see this world and this family and how it evolves. Would it include the anti-villain league? Because that, for me, has a whole wealth of potential. You've got Steve Coogan here yeah. as Silas Ramsbottom, I believe. Yes, yeah. So seeing more of him and you working with him would delight me. I think it would be, yeah, it, it would be sort of an animated uh, James Bond series at that point mm. with some, uh, some counterintuitive heroes, uh, very un-Bond-like mm. Bonds. Uh, it, might, it could be really fun, but you never know. We'll see. We'll see how this one goes. Yeah, I'm looking forward to Bond 24 having James Bond whip out a fart gun <laughs> and just gassing Blofeld. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe at some point they, they all combine. And that and Fast and Furious, they just all become one movie. Three fast, three despicable. <laughs> I think we're onto something here. I, I really do. Okay. Yeah. I well, wanted to ask as well about The Way Way Back because I just saw that uh, oh, you last did. week. And that's a terrific movie. Thanks. Um, a very different role from from this one for you because, uh, well, we see him. I mean, this isn't a spoiler to see, say he opens a movie by telling a, a slightly, you know, sensitive teenage boy that he's probably a three out of ten. Mm-hmm. And I think he thinks he's doing the right thing and he probably sort of pats himself on the back when he gets out of the car and goes, good talk. He's yeah, that kind he, of guy, isn't he? He's an unlikable character, mm. but I think in a strange way, he believes his heart's in the right place. Yeah. He just has very high expectations from all of those around him and uh and and they're not expectations that anyone could could achieve yeah so uh yeah he i liken this character to a coach that you might have had growing up in any sport that um for the sake of of character building is extremely hard on his athletes Mm -hmm. and uh and and that's that's sometimes very detrimental so He's, uh, yeah, he doesn't come across as the nicest guy. No, I think that's probably fair. But how did you get involved in the, in the thing in the first um, place? Because the script's been around for a little while. Yeah, the writers, the writers sent me the script and um, offered me the part, and I loved the script. And uh, that was that. I jumped on, and then Tony Collette called and said she was considering doing it, and I said, I'll do it if you do it. She <laughs> said, I'll do it if you do it. So it was fun to work with her again, yeah. too. I really like her well, a lot. Little Miss Sunshine reunion. Yeah, it sort of was. And then more uh, along those lines, we went to Sundance with the movie and had a very similar experience. Oh, wow. Because it premiered, and then it was sold for all sorts of money. It was, it was, very, it was very much like Little Miss Sundance, because it was this little movie that no one anticipated anything mm-hmm. from um, that did quite well. Yeah. Well, they should have known. I mean, even apart from the two of you, you know, Alice and Janie and Sam oh, Rockwell as well. I mean, that's just... That's they are cast. fantastic in this yeah. movie. Sam, uh, Sam Rockwell is just uh, so charming and wonderful and funny in this movie. Does he do any dancing? He does. He does some dancing. Yes! Yeah. <laughs> this is great news. Yeah, we were devastated when he came in to do the podcast and didn't actually dance into the room. We, we thought that was how he entered uh, a room. And I thought that's how he walked. Yeah. He is the best. I, he's such a nice guy. That was obviously Jim Rash and... and uh, Nat Faxon, yeah. Are you a fan of Community? Um, I am, yeah. And and he, you know, and both of them are are really funny yeah. actors as well. And and they're they have small parts in the movie that are hilarious. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm happy happy to get that out. I don't know when it's when it's premiering here, but it's. Uh, I want to say later in the summer, probably. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
not going up against Despicable Me. That's the important thing. It is in the States. Oh, really? It comes out two days later. So, yeah. Wow. There's a lot of, there's you- a lot of me the first <laughs> week of July. Are you feeling a bit torn, you know? I'm, I'm feeling a little overexposed. Like, <laughs> good thing that it's not my face in Despicable Me and just my voice. True. That's fine. <laughs> But you're not you're not torn on what to guide people towards. Oh, I will get whatever you want to see. Double bill. I'm happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And make a night of it. <laughs> well, it's an obvious double bill. Exactly. You know. I'm feeling it. Um, speaking about uh, Little Miss Sunshine, it's one of those movies that I think will live long in the memory and will have that kind of critical love for a long time. Do you get a lot of people talking to you about that? Is that something that is close to your fans' hearts? Uh, I think so. It's close to my heart. It's a movie that I I thought was really special. And I think everyone involved with it felt that way. And it it gave me the opportunity to work for the first time with Alan Arkin, who was a huge influence on me and uh, kind of my idol growing up. And uh, I really emulated him. So getting to meet him and then work with him was a, a very, very big deal for me. But yeah, I think the movie, and, and it holds up. Mm. It's simple and... One of the things I liked about it is that it's very economical. It did, doesn't overexplain any of the characters, and it's um, it's really simple and kind, and um, it, it it all all the components worked well together. I thought. My final question is a bit of an odd one, and it could go down badly. But we've got Steve Coogan in Despicable Me Two, and Alan Partridge, the movie is coming out this year as well. Have you seen the trailer? Are you a fan of Alan Partridge? Um, I've never seen Alan Partridge. <sighs> I uh, is this not going to go down? Well? It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Um, You've broken you. Ali's heart, but apart so from that, it's sorry. Fine. You need to appear in some so, way. I, f- I feel like some of your comic characters and your demeanor would fit so well in a Alan Partridge world. Oh, really? You should watch it, I promise you. Okay, I'm, I'm not familiar with it. I've heard good things, I will say that. An office Partridge crossover, maybe. Whoa, don't. I've my, just blown your mind. My mind just starting to leak. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, well, Steve Carell, thank you so much for coming in, and everybody go see Despicable Me too, and of course also The Way Way Back. Well, well, anything I meant. Anything. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. All right, time for reviews now. Since it's been the week between mega blockbusters, we have a plethora of smaller films to get through. So let's kick things off with the aforementioned This Is The End, which sees Seth Rogen, Jay Baruchel, James Franco, Craig Robinson, Danny McBride, Jonah Hill, and a bunch of other people attempt to sit out the apocalypse at Franco's house. What did we think of this? Uh, Loved the idea. Loved it in large part. Um, so it starts off, as you just said, with all these very famous names, all playing themselves mm-hmm. and all playing um, heightened, self-deprecating versions of themselves uh, at this big Hollywood party, which is incredibly funny. Uh, you've got like Michael Sarah hitting on Rihanna, and then loads and loads and loads of people die as the world begins to end. And then it's all these people are then holed up in um, James Franco's house, partly trying to survive and partly trying to survive each other and for large parts of that it's incredibly funny they all take the mick out of each other and their worst films um, and there are a lot of uh, great bits in this which are more about the apocalypse section there's a great action sequence where they get chased around the house by a monster which I would have loved more of that but I think that's a budget thing um, the problem I had with it overall is that it goes on a bit too long it's about, I think it's about two hours, and it's a, re- it's a really, this is the kind of film that should be 90 minutes. It's great for that, getting get out really funny, but it drags those out a little bit too much and gets a little bit self-indulgent. But what does work really well is that it's got a whole ton of cameos and it uses them so brilliantly. Like Everyone who turns up just for five minutes, they get, they get the absolute right part for them. And there'll be ones that people know about, like Emma Watson, who's great just for a couple of minutes, but there are a couple that you haven't heard about yet, which are so funny. There's one that comes later on, which is it's it's literally about 10 seconds yeah. but I laughed myself stupid we we have actually asked I'm not going to say what it is we've actually asked Seth Rogen and uh, Evan Goldberg about that we're going to save it for later in the year so it doesn't spoil anything but honestly it's, it's one of the funniest cameos I've ever seen I agree <laughs> <laughs> I support this message I enjoyed it as well I thought it was very funny uh, you know it does it is a self-indulgent premise mm. uh, if not handled well and there are points I thought where it didn't quite work I actually didn't think the Emma Watson um, cameo worked didn't work for me that one in particular the other mystery one definitely did work for me and I've got to say uh, it has possibly the best ending of a film that I've seen this year the last <laughs> the sort of is it, I can't remember if it goes over the end credits or whether it's um, just before the credits but that is genius all right, so that got three stars from us, but it was a pretty darn positive three. I yeah, think. it's a, I gave it three, and it's it's a, a three for how good it, it's a three for the fact that it's great for large part. If it was 
change a couple of bits, it would have easily been a four. Uh, next up, we've got the also aforementioned animated sequel, Despicable Me 2, wherein Steve Carell's Gru is trying to settle down to life as a dad, only to be interrupted by the anti-villain league's search for a new bad guy who has been stealing monster-making serum. Uh, with Steve Coogan and Kristen Wiig also on board this time, um, what do we make of this? Well, actually, I'll take this one, shall I? Because I actually wrote the review. Um, this is another one that could have done with a little bit of trimming in the mm-hmm. middle. Uh, again, you know, kids animated film, and especially one that's kind of pitched to quite young kids like Despicable Me too. I think it could have done with being maybe 10 or 15 minutes shorter because for example they, they try to be a little bit subtle here there's a bit of a, a love story that goes on and they try to develop it quite slowly and, and, and set it up quite subtly and it's like mm. it's a film where little yellow guys are going around hitting each other yep. you don't need to be subtle and there's also the thing of there there's a secret villain whom they're looking for Yeah. and rather than make it some big mystery and give you lots of possibles which could have been a lot of fun yeah you identify pretty much straight away who it is and that but then they keep pretending they don't know and it just drags out this middle section feels a bit like they weren't quite sure where to go yeah it's, it's a weird thing where he goes undercover in a shopping mall which yes. is supposed to be where the super villain's hanging out and and it just that makes less than no sense even but, by animated standards but that's okay but that i mean it's a fun idea the fact that they were there were all these people running these shops and like, it could be any one of these and they i felt like they could have done more with that but the minions are still really funny the minions are hilarious and also i mean any kid in the screening even if there were bits that the adults weren't laughing at, at the minions the kids were just yeah. falling off their chairs laughing which is you know got to be chalked up to a success well, exactly what's the, what's the secret behind the minions because they they do seem to have taken off in a huge way yeah well they're getting their own movie Really? Yeah, there's a Minions movie with Sandra Bullock as the villain. Similar to the penguins in Madagascar. In that, yes. And but, but these, why are these? Because I can think of a lot of animated films where the little creatures going. Meh. It's hard. It's hard to know. I can't really nail what is. I think good it's about well. Them. They're, they're quite cheery looking and quite innocent, and also quite fond of hitting each other. Yeah. Um, for amusement. Right. And and dressing up in silly costumes. I think they're basically kids. They're, I think kids maybe just identify with them a little bit. Yeah. More what is the film? They're like be? drunk toddlers with a big dressing up. How box. are they going <laughs> to? How is, a, how is a film going to be sustained with it? Because they don't talk, do they? they, they talk no, nonsense. but I, I think it will. It would be a massive hit. It would be it surrealist. It would be yeah. like a kind of, you know, Dali-esque. Well, with extra Sandra Bullock. It'll be a character drama, surely. I have a quick question about this, actually. I haven't seen the film, but um, I know Pacino was involved at one point. Mm. He was going to voice a character, and he seemingly dropped out about two weeks ago um, to be replaced by Benjamin Bratt. Yes. Would this have been improved by Pacino? Um, maybe a little bit, because that character could do with being a bit larger mm. than life. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, you might have wanted someone a bit more over the top for that. But, I mean, it, it is certainly set up in the film as a Hispanic character. So mm. ha- having Brat in it is, is no bad bad fit. Um, so, yeah, this also got three stars. I think, again, it could have been a four if it had been just a little bit tighter and that little bit kind of yep. um, more succinct. But, um, but a lot of fun. And kids are going to love those minions again. Um, also out this week is Hummingbird, which is uh, Jason Statham's collaboration with acclaimed writer Stephen Knight, who's also directing this time. Now, this has been pitched as a gritty London thriller, which sees the Stath as a homeless special forces vet who cleans up his act in order to take revenge when one of his friends is killed. Uh, I, I was really disappointed by this because yeah, it started too. off as one thing where you thought, because Jason Statham, I think, is a, is a decent actor who is generally a nonsense. Some of it great nonsense. But this started off seeming like it was him trying to do something else because he plays this guy who's homeless and um, his a, a friend of his gets roughed up and he declares revenge. And so it's like Jason Statham is playing this homeless man. Isn't then we're going to make this much more dramatic and mm. subvert everything you think of when you think of a Jason Statham movie? And within about twenty minutes, think, no, nah, we're not going to do that. We're just going to do a Jason Statham movie, a not particularly good one. So it's just him beating people up, going around growling at people, and it's just I find it really tiresome. It's it's a really weird mix of that sort of Stephen Knight kind of gritty London realism, and then Jason Statham OTT action um, for me, which which just didn't work. And then there's a weird thing with where his love interest essentially or is. is is, is kind of female sounding board is a nun. Yeah. Which I, I don't know. Didn't we get past that in like the forties? You know. Yeah. It, it just felt really bizarre. It's a very it's a very strange movie. Would it have been improved by being called Hobo Cop? No, because he's not a cop. <laughs> <laughs> he's kind of a cop. No, I, really. I haven't seen it. In my, in my mind, he is. It's actually called Redemption in the US. So uh, oh, really? it could have could have had a different title here. It's a better they like calling films bird. Redemption in the states, don't they? Because there, there was the raid as well. Yeah, it's like bunging redemption. It's it's just, yeah, well, I guess they're they're fond of it, and it's a good concept. So yeah. yay, redemption. But 
It really, I think it really hits nothing. It doesn't hit if you want a stupid Jason Statham movie. It doesn't hit that. If you want a a drama about a uh, hobo, to use Nick's word, <laughs> on a uh, on a revenge mission, it doesn't work in that way either. It's just yeah. a, an odd hodgepodge of ideas, none of which stick together properly. Yeah, it's sad. I mean, we, we'd like to see Stephen Knight, you know, go into directing and, and you know do films as good as he yeah. has as, he, as he's written for other people. But I think this isn't quite that yet. Um, we give this one two stars, so um, a little bit of a disappointment there. Last but not least is The East, which is the new film from the cool new dream team, uh, Zol Batmanglage and Britt Marling, who um, both wrote and he directed She Stars. Um, and she's a corporate agent who's sent to infiltrate a gang of Occupy-like protesters and freakins. So what do we make of this? Well, it harks back to those great 70s movies where American movie makers look, looked inside their own borders for corporations and mm-hmm. you know the feds and conspiracies the parallax view network that kind of stuff those great movies they were fueled by anger this doesn't have that kind of burning blazing sort of rage to drive it which makes it a little polite in <laughs> the sense that she's Marlene's character kind of it's about she falls in with this guy played by Alexander Skarsgård who works this anarchist Occupy style cell and you know her personal feelings cloud her judgment and and she takes some she has some empathy and some sympathy for their cause um what it lacks as i say is just that that real kind of fire mm. which is weird because there's a lot of that fire line. about at the moment there is yeah absolutely and she's in another film robert redford uh, robert redford's latest which i think has been pushed back to next year where she where it's a similar kind of story of 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 a terrorist so-called terrorist or anarchist cell um, and it's again, it's looking for problems within America, which should be, you know, should produce some great thrillers in years to come, hopefully, because there is a lot of angst out there. Mm. This doesn't quite bottle that well enough, I don't think. But it is very well played, very well acted. It is gripping, and it's we've given it three stars. It's well worth looking out for. Fair enough. And and I mean, these pair are basically after the sound of your voice. They're kind of the young, up and coming kind of indie hipsters, right? We should be keeping an eye on them. Brit Marling definitely, yeah, both of them, but Brit Marling as well. I mean, she's she's an actor. She's got you know directorial and screenwriting credits too. She's an up and coming talent, definitely to watch. Okay. Also out this week, uh, there's Turkish film Night of Silence, uh, which is about uh, a man just released from prison and his teenage bride. That got four stars from us. And also Sarah Polly's Stories We Tell, which is a story of her own family, told through interviews, reconstructions, documentary footage, um, and that got the big five stars. So that's definitely well worth a look if you're near a cinema showing it. Well, that's it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be joined by Jesse Eisenberg and Isla Fisher, who'll be talking about Now You See Me and performing magic tricks. And we also have a field in England's uh, Reese Shearsmith coming in, unless, of course, he ingests some bad mushrooms on the way here and the plan goes horribly awry. Until then, it's goodbye from Ollie. Goodbye. Goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. Goodbye from Nick. Cheerio. And goodbye from me. I'm off to lay in supplies for the coming apocalypse. <laughs>